0: Because trauma is stored down to the very cells of our body, resurrection makes sense because we need a scrubbing down to the cellular level.
1: Hi, Internet. Welcome to episode 7 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning author, I'm a celebrated humorist, and I've probably owned more pairs of glow-in-the-dark pants than you ever will. Um, This is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big things, important things. Um, The reason for that is because I want to show it's possible to change your mind, to walk through life with an open mind, to learn new things. Um, It's October. Welcome to the spookiest month of the year. So we're going to get spooky on the next two episodes of Change My Mind. Um, Next week, I've got someone who is going to dive deep into... The paranormal, but this week we're going to get a little bit more philosophical about uh, spooky stuff. We're going to talk about the ghost in the machine. Now, in case you uh, aren't familiar, the ghost in the machine is a concept in Western philosophy that says the essence of a human being is a soul, an incorporeal soul. Um, controlling the physical body. Um, The technical term for this is dualism, right? A human being is a body and a soul, and the soul and the body are essentially unrelated to one another. The soul is just this incorporeal ghost, if you will, controlling your flesh and blood body, which is a machine. Um, This is a belief that has permeated a lot of western thinking even among people who probably don't believe in the soul Um, there are a lot of people out there who think of the mind as kind of the supreme essence of a being and the body is essentially irrelevant to it or at least just a servant of it um It's certainly a view that has permeated a lot of Protestant Christianity. You know, your body dies, but your soul, whatever it is, flies up to heaven. Um, and I spoke to someone who once would have thought that way until he studied some philosophy and psychology and even Christian theology, um, And so this is a talk that exists in the intersection between psychology and philosophy and theology, which is kind of my jam, (laughs) but it gets pretty time-cubey pretty fast. Um, I spoke to Zach Korthals, who is a um, divinity student married to a psychological counselor, and he's got some ideas that are very specific and he is very passionate about. So I just kind of wound him up and let him go. I'll see you on the flip side for some closing thoughts. Um, for the time being, I'm just going to flip you over to my talk with Zach. Bye. Welcome to Episode 7 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and I'm sitting here with Zach Korthals. Say hi to the people, Zach. Hi. This is my podcast where I interview people who have changed their minds about big things, tribal things, like that ugly tattoo you have. Um, The reason for that is because there is a somewhat widespread belief that people do not change their minds under any circumstances. Um, And the current political climate certainly seems to confirm that, but people do change their minds. We've all seen it happen. I want to know why. So this is about 18% research project and 82% therapy for me. So... Let's get started. Um, Zach is a social worker, an adoption case manager out in Longview, Texas, which weirdly is the same place my previous guest was from, but that wasn't planned at all. Um, And we're going to talk about how he changed his mind about the nature of the soul. Um, I tried to put some words on this. I think the philosophical term terms would be that he went from uh, ontological dualism um, to what you might call ontological monism or physicalism. Um, That's a lot of big words, but the short version is that he would have uh, previously believed the soul was something incorporeal, separate from the body, and now doesn't really believe in a incorporeal soul is all at all. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, for the most part that would be uh, pretty accurate. All right. Yeah. It is um October now.
1: Um and I wanted to do a couple of spooky podcasts because Halloween, as we all know, is the most wonderful time of the year. Um so yeah, this this week we're getting into we're getting into kind of the philosophical side of ghosts or souls as the case may be. We're gonna talk about some stuff that you know intersects with psychology, philosophy, and theology all at once, which is super my jam. Um, and then in the two weeks, uh, the second October episode, uh, we're going to talk about someone who has really had experiences with the paranormal. So we're going to get mildly spooky this week, and in two weeks, we will get super spooky. So yeah um let's start with uh let's start with zach though you want to tell the people about yourself zach who are you confess all your crimes
0: (laughs) uh i feel like a big nobody so i don't know what to say here but i will try
1: you're on a podcast dude you're famous (laughs) do you know how many people are listening to us right now like dozens literally dozens Or maybe like half a
0: dozen. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I mean, we are two white guys with microphones. So what else are we going to do but talk on a podcast? I mean, I think you're legally obligated to
1: start a podcast if that's the case, right? I'm pretty sure, yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure like I know you a little bit online. I really haven't heard much. I don't feel like about your professional work, so I'm actually really interested. You know, you don't you don't have to talk for an hour about it, but give us like the the 2-minute version of who you are and what you do.
0: Okay. So, I am a post-adopt case manager in the state of Texas. What that means is when someone adopts from the Texas foster care system, they are eligible for post-adoption services. That includes case management work, respite funds, summer camp funds in the summertime, and a couple of other things as just support and resourcing. It's a free and a voluntary service that the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services contracts out. All of me and my fellow case managers throughout the state are mobile workers. And what we do is a family adopts and then they enroll with us for support and resourcing and our entire program is based upon an evidence research intervention model called trust-based relational intervention or TBRI can i ask um
1: what kind of uh education you have you said you were working on an mdiv a master divinity um is your is your undergrad degree in psychology then or
0: no believe it or not i actually started out my academic career with a Bible degree. I have a dual major in biblical studies and like ecclesial or, or church leadership, which is uh, incorporating by a business classes, you know, the day-to-day nitty-gritty bolts of running, um, basically a nonprofit organization, which is how a church is structured in the United States. And hmm. um, so my undergrad degree is that. And I went into full-time ministry after that at a larger Southern Baptist church, a multi-site church here in Longview, Texas. And I stepped out of the role that I played at that church into this one based upon, at the time, what I called a larger calling on my life to enter this field. That's really interesting to me because I, I mean, based on just the
1: your passion for psychology, I always just kind of assumed you had a degree in it. You seem to know quite a bit about it, but... I guess I've studied psychology more than you have, which is weird. Like I was at one time working my way toward a degree in, uh, like, a, a master's in educational psychology, oh. which I never got and didn't get very far into. But um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, so let's just um, get into it then. What did what did you change your mind about? How would you put it? What did you believe
0: before? What do you believe now? I would say that I went from a almost Gnostic belief about the nature of the ultimate substance of what it is to be a human, an immaterial soul with an almost outer shell or representation uh, of the body, uh, to having in understanding that we were equally immaterial and material. And then now, basically, I don't see any need for the immaterial part of us because of what we have been discovering in neuroscience and biology and the focal point of Christianity has been the resurrection for two millennia.
1: We've I mean, we've talked about this on the show a bit um, about how contemporary Protestantism seems to conceive of the body and soul as very separate things and how to (laughs) a lot of people who have been on this show, including myself, the the approach seems quasi Gnostic that's a little bit inside baseball gnosticism if you don't know was it was kind of a set of early heresies condemned by the early christian church that conceived of the body and soul as essentially separate the soul is essentially good the body is essentially evil um your body is a prison for your soul that sort of thing um and that's it i mean that's an idea that was it was popular among Platonists, the followers of Plato. It's it's popular in certain Eastern religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. It's not really part of historic Christianity. Um, so hopefully that makes a little bit of sense to listeners who, you know, aren't as uh, you know super up on this stuff. But um, bear with us because I think this is going to be pretty interesting. Um, Zach, why would you say you? believed what you believed. Why, why, why were you such a fan of dualism?
0: Let's start there. <laughs> such a fan of dualism. Great way to put that. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that I was a fan of dualism. What I would say is it was a default belief system incorporated okay. in my religious tradition and faith background. And while I once harbored um, <laughs> dissatisfaction with my Upbringing in the particular faith strands that I did, because I did not grow up Southern Baptist, but I did grow up Baptist, Mm -hmm. a very conservative form of Baptist. I don't like this, just wasn't a thing. It was one of those assumed belief structures, uh, because I did, I grew up, like I said, Baptist. I was always Baptist till my family moved to Austin, Texas in 2000, and we joined a non-denominational church which is basically a baptist church but they can dance (laughs) um i'm just kidding that's not true there's some other differences there i just don't know what they are um my my favorite my
1: favorite one that i've heard is a non-denominational church is just a baptist church with a cool
0: website oh my gosh that's (laughs) so true (laughs) And maybe a hipper youth ministry. Coffee shop. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're describing my experience exactly. I grew up in a, in a Baptist tradition. My mom was even basically the youth minister at the church that I grew up at for quite some time. But because it's a Baptist church, she could not have that title, just so everybody knows. My mom is a huge part of ministry and where do we go when we die is, I don't know if there's a more quintessential 80s and 90s evangelical question to start off conversations. (laughs) Where do you go when you die? That's kind of my experience is we're just kind of waiting around to die (laughs) and everything is going to burn. And uh, Left Behind Theology was a huge part and parcel to all of this. Oh, I get it. You're saying
1: you were a Baptist. I get (laughs) it. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, you're funny. Uh, So that that understanding of how do we exist now, there was such a disconnect to how do we exist later. Hmm. And that caused a lot of tension for me growing up and like in what way how would you say that caused tension so the best way i know how to illustrate this causing tension is i grew up in a setting where i'd hear a lot of women talk because i was the child of a single mom and there was such a talk about feeling god's presence not even saying the holy spirit but just like feeling god (laughs) and i had no concept for that Hmm. what on earth it meant to feel God, and it made me very angry. I'm not sure I'm clear on why that made you angry. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I was angry because I had never had that spiritual experience. In my Baptist church, I'd never heard sermons about the Holy Spirit. We did not believe much in a trinity or a functional trinity as much as a duality between father and son. But it was also never quite clear to me how Jesus was God either. Hmm. To be fair, the doctrine of the Trinity is not the easiest thing to communicate to a child. (laughs) Sure. But why there was not much of an understanding of Nicene, Trinitarian theology with Christological definitions, nothing classic, nothing that translated classical ecclesiological understandings of Christian doctrine to the present day life that we were mm-hmm. living. There was no place for the resurrection in that. Mm-hmm. And so the resurrection, I heard one pastor put it this way, the resurrection was like a receipt <laughs> that I got to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. It's Jesus died, yes, but he rose again And that's the receipt that you are okay with God Mm. and get to go to heaven. That was literally his theology.
1: (laughs) What led you to first um, question this belief then?
0: So I don't think that... My goal here tonight, or any of the goals of any of your guests, is to actually change people's mind. It's obviously just to tell our stories of how we got to where we are, right? Right, yeah. The most I can do is present my story interwoven with the research that had to happen to get there, and then ultimately say, you go do the research, and you come to your (laughs) own conclusion. I feel that's as honest as I can be. So I have to start with my own story. My own story is I was born to a single mom. She was 17 when she had me. I've never known my biological father. Um, My mom has been honest with me that her home environment was difficult growing up the middle child of three. My aunts are both 19 and 15 years older than me. And so um, things were not great until apparently I came into the picture, and and I had a really warm and loving family s- uh, system, extended system that I could not anticipate. Like I can't even imagine not having a close relationship with my grandparents and aunts and stuff like that. That was just my life growing up. I didn't even know that I didn't have a dad. Like It just was not something my awareness was on consciously. Um, but all my friends in school, like they, for the most part, had some sort of two parent system growing up. And then eventually my mom and I moved to Iowa, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, of all places.
1: In the- Oh my gosh, my brother used to live there. No. He was, yeah, he was miserable
0: the whole time he lived there. I know why. <laughs> The only thing that, good that came out of that was my mom marrying a man who eventually adopted me. Um, he would be my stepfather if he didn't actually adopt me. But I, um, they got married. They started dating, got engaged and got married. And I just, I quickly started calling him dad. And uh, they got married in March of 2000. And he's a software or a computer programmer, software Kind of guy. And with the dot com boom, um, he had a buddy from college who just kept sweetening a deal to bring him down to Austin, Texas, where dot coms were booming at the time. <laughs> and so, October of 2000, we are down in Austin, Texas, biggest place any of us have ever lived. And then by the summer of 2001, the bubbles burst. And my dad's Mm. out of a job. And we just moved. They have a mortgage on a home. They own a property Mm. still up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. That's just a mess to monitor from so far away. And it was a pretty stressful time. Yeah, so we were were there. Eventually, he gets another job. Um, Things are tough. But it's a good job, and my family has been in Austin ever since. I met my wife there. Uh, I was homeschooled at this point. And uh, being homeschooled in Austin is a unique animal. I will say that. (laughs) Um, Because this is going to be a truism of all places, that it's this the spectrum of people in a homeschool in the homeschooling world in Austin is everybody from we make our own clothes and grow our own vegetables <laughs> to the public schools and private schools literally could not handle them. <laughs> but you have to understand all of that is happening at the Austin weird level. Yeah it was it was very it was a it was an interesting place to be homeschooled, I will say that My wife was also in the the homeschooling ring, and um, we started dating my senior year of high school, January 1st, 2009, and it was her what would have been her freshman year, but she was doing a community college at the time after having graduated. Um, She is actually... The psychology one. If I'm the theology one, she's the psychology one. She is a licensed professional counselor in the state of Texas. She holds a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. Um, The rest of my story involves going (laughs) from Austin, Texas to Longview, Texas, deep east Texas, to go to an engineering school to learn more about God. Okay. I went to... I went to Laterno University and it is an, an it is an engineering and aviation school, very technically hmm. minded. And the liberal arts side of things is not very well represented, though every degree tract has to have a minimum Bible courses. Hmm. And that includes two that everybody has to take and then you have whatever your electives are after that. It's usually one or two credits depending. And then it goes up from there, depending on how liberal artsy it is. So it's an, engineering,
1: it's an engineering school that requires Bible credits? Yep. That is interesting.
0: <laughs> I won't yes, say it's it bad, is. but it's certainly interesting. Isn't it? The school itself is uh, very much so homeschool friendly, too, which is why I ended up there. A fourth of the population were homeschooled but that includes not just state homeschooling but mks mm-hmm. uh, missionary kids mm-hmm. who are homeschooled overseas so there's a there's an eclectic cultural diversity represented at Laterno. Um, i i
1: imagine I, I imagine that if you take the venn diagram of people who want to study engineering and people who want to study the bible like and almost everybody in that overlap is going to be homeschooled. So, <laughs> I mean, that makes it's a lot weird. of sense to me.
0: So, <laughs> It's weird how big that Venn diagram gets at Letourneau University. That is, that is fascinating. I'm going to have to read up on that school. That's really interesting. So, you know, the whole work is mission movement. This is an aside, I guess. The, the, the like, work
1: is mission movement. I don't know if I'm familiar yeah.
0: with that. I can kind of guess what it is based
1: on the name, but...
0: (laughs) Yeah, work is worship, using your talents, time, and treasure in your vocation as your mission work, if you will, because you can reach people that might not ever go to church, like missiological thinking, Mm -hmm. like that was actually pioneered by RG Laterno, the founder of Laterno University, which is why he he actually invented mobile offshore oil rigs and giant earth moving mechanical machines, hmm. like think caterpillar but bigger. Yeah. Like all of that kind of stuff. He invented all of those things in his head and then immediately put it to paper. Like he, he invented the inner workings of those things and put That's it to paper. Wild. My yeah. Gosh. And so He was also responsible for the Big Inch, which is a pipeline that actually supplied oil during World War II and is credited as one of the major reasons we won the war. Huh. Yeah. To get back to my story, my wife is an engineering admissions counselor. I am entering the second half of my undergrad degree. We are... I become... Uh, I go up and work in the provost office for Laterna University, Um, and basically we're at all levels of the institution, both me as a student and her as an employee, and we love our time there, but it also opened us up to the way institutions operate, kind of just like the nature of them. In a way that we'd never Mm -hmm. been privy to before. What was interesting was watching how the bottom line seemed to outweigh confessed Christian values or spiritual values uh, Mm. at the time. And that was interesting. My wife Mm -hmm. then moved into... So the plan was always for her to get a master's degree. And because she was an employee of Letourneau University, I got the rest of my undergrad uh, waivered. So my, the rest of my degree was free. And we only had student loans from the first year or two of my undergrad. And then she got her master's degree free because she was an employee of the university. And so she got her master's of marriage and family therapy from some very cutting edge people the the provost of latern university at the time he's no longer the provost uh, he was a pioneer in marriage and family therapy and family systems theory and um, his protege who was also the wife of one of So my mentor in the Bible department, he is a world expert in the gospel of Mark, and he's from Kazakhstan, and he's amazing. Uh, I love him to death to this day, and he got me into, like, he introduced me to Eastern Orthodoxy (laughs) through all of this stuff. Um, I'm being mentored by him, and my wife is then being mentored by his wife, who's a psychology prophet and also was the protege of this of this provost and he or and she did family systems theory but with a multicultural perspective because she's in a multicultural marriage and so it lended to a more robust understanding of what is cultural and what seems to be anthropological. Like what is what is more universally human when it Hmm. comes to relationships. But it was still a very CBT, okay. uh, very cognitive behavioral therapy program. Um, and that is definitely my wife's mm-hmm. training. Long story short, I needed an internship to round out my degree. I got an internship at a large, growing um, Southern Baptist church here in Longview that would eventually become officially mega church and multi site. And they were of, and during this time I uh, like when I went to Laterno I got heavily into the young restless and reformed movement. So I really got into a figure by the name of Mark Driscoll. And he was one of the figureheads to this particular movement in Christianity. In fact, it made Time Magazine at one point. It was the young restless and reformed movement and him and this really in an older but more well-known pastor by the name of John Piper were seen as these two poles in reformed Christianity about cool hip Christians who could think. (laughs) I'm serious. That's how I would describe that entire movement. You could drink beer, you could smoke cigars, well, and whiskey, you could drink and you could smoke and you could talk about deep, boring theological concepts till the cows
1: (laughs) hashtag life goals
0: (laughs) (laughs) and then um tim keller would be another probably big name in all of this whether people know that or not and he's centered in new york and he's more in the presbyterian church and his huge missiological push which is what is the goal of the Christian life, but to be on mission for God and to advance his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. And he believed that if that started in the center of an urban city that influenced the culture in a wider sense, then things would trickle down. It's like trickle down economics, but theological.
1: (laughs) So what you're saying is that Tim Keller is the Margaret Thatcher of Presbyterianism.
0: <laughs> no, I just really wanted to say trickle down. <laughs> <laughs> but Tim really did believe you get to the heart and center of a of a cultural center like New York City, you affect the city, you affect the wider influence circle that it's in. And the whole goal was to bring the gospel there in order to advance the kingdom by a trickle-down effect um i love tim keller i've learned so much from him but i also have definitely come to have issues with that kind of thinking uh, because it's not very relational and we'll get to that in a little bit um but i really really got into that movement in high school and it led to the church that I served in here, which was an interesting experience to say. Nonetheless, my wife eventually lost her job at Latournelle And we moved into probably the most formative part of our entire lives. And it took this long to get there. So my wife is tra- was trained in cognitive behavioral therapy. That is the basically when you think of therapy you're probably and you're not thinking about freud's you're thinking about modern therapy you're thinking about (laughs) talk-based therapy that is cognitive behavioral therapy the idea that ultimately thoughts affect behaviors whether conscious or unconscious and therefore you can correct behavior by correcting thoughts i mean that, that it's a little more complex than that but i'd say in a nutshell That's about what it's come to, or that's what it was. And now we are in a couple of different phases, if you will. But CBT is by far the most evidence-based and widely practiced expression of therapy in the United States. But we moved into a, what is called a trauma-informed practice. And I say we, because... Obviously I was there doing it too. <laughs> no, that's not true. My wife st- did completed her internship. You need 3000 hours in the state of Texas. Um, and 15 of those have to be directly, or 1500 of those have to directly be with clients. And the other 1500 can be indirect, like paperwork related to clients. Um, and so she moved into a trauma psychologist's practice and had her entire worldview flipped everything she was trained in quickly when you start practicing you realize the diagnostic and statistical manual the bible of modern psychology that holds the diagnoses and descriptions thereof of every mental disorder known right now um doesn't work (laughs) it does not operate Mm -hmm the way you are trained to handle it in an academic institution. And I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. something that's not normal. Like I'm not blowing anybody's minds here. Go talk to a practicing therapist and like, yeah, the DSM isn't worthless, but when on earth am I ever referring this into my practice? Unless we're talking about insurance. Hmm. So while my wife is experiencing this worldview shift about how humans are actually wired i am in a fast-paced growing discipleship context where i am writing the curriculum for the thousand people on a sunday um I, i'm not trying to exaggerate that i was the the church did sermon-based curriculum where the sermon the pastor would preach a passage and i would come at the same topic from another angle in scripture. So if we're going through the Gospel of Mark Mm. and Jesus is teaching on money that week, I would tackle money or finances or whatever the big picture is from another angle in scripture. Um, So Mm. Proverbs or something. And then I would build discussion-based questions on the curriculum and we'd have a one-two punch uh, because life groups, which are, I don't know if any small groups, like like getting together with other people from the church to study scripture or pray or whatever, uh, some people know them throughout the week. What we did at this church was did those on Sundays. So you would have an hour of life group and then you would have worship together. And the the one to impact drove everything home, gave everybody a common vocabulary. And when you have a common vocabulary, culture arises. And so that's institutionally speaking – how you could form a culture really quickly is get everybody talking about the same things and start synthesizing definitions that everybody agrees to um so that's what we did at the church and that's what i was brought in to do as an intern as i started writing that weekly curriculum for all of our adult life groups and then eventually a lot of discipleship, like building discipleship curriculum, was attached onto that. By the end of my tenure, I'd be helping the pastors with their research briefs for their sermons. And I was also the executive administrative assistant for a campus pastor. A lot of stuff kept getting added onto my plate, but it wasn't the direction that we wanted to go um, as a as a couple. Because of what my wife was learning about trauma informed care and about what I was learning, um, basically through the Sermon on the Mount at the t- at the time. So this was about twenty fifth, the end of twenty fourteen, beginning of twenty fifteen. Our son is born, but my wife loses her job at Laterno, transitions to this trauma informed practice, has her entire worldview shift. I'm working part time at the church, hoping that I will get to work full-time and get a full-time salary and benefits and it doesn't happen the money could have been there but the church for whatever reason i was overlooked and my wife and i Hmm. had to be in some dire financial straits um every social program you could think of we were on and that's really tough to admit um in a culture like the church environment we were in i'm not saying people didn't take care of us because there were people who did take care of us but it it wasn't from the people who knew me more intimately and was expected to uh, they had instilled in me an expectation that um, people who work hard get rewarded and uh, it was Mm -hmm. also during this time some other stuff happened where i almost lost my job right when i had my son born because of a miscommunication and I was blamed for that miscommunication even though I don't believe it Mm. was my fault but that was about the time I realized I couldn't trust the people in charge of running that church and that's really hard for me to admit because I desperately wanted to connect with them but I wasn't allowed to connect with them it was during this time I read a bunch, I had to read and be up on the latest scholarship for just keeping up with curriculum. It couldn't be too long. I had to be able to communicate to oil field executives and medical professionals in the people who worked in the oil field and the people who worked down the street at the gas station. Like I had to communicate to anybody at any stage of life. And how do you do that with complex, at times very dry scholarship? But One of the things that really transformed me was reading Kingdom Ethics by David Gushy and Glenn Stosson, and The Moral Vision of the New Testament by Richard Hayes and uh, Cruciformity by Michael Gorman. These books just brought out a whole different side of what I think it means to follow Jesus in contemporary context. Um, But what really transformed me was a conversation around nonviolence, um, because the Jesus's mm. Sermon on the Mount, as discussed through kingdom ethics, was basically the way the Gospel of Matthew is structured is very is very much so you almost have a new Moses in a new Exodus presented at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew mm. and the Sermon on the Mount could be considered a new Torah, a new way. Mm-hmm. That's actually what Torah means, the way. It doesn't mean law as mm-hmm. we think of statutory law. When Jesus talks about not doing something or doing something, um, the imperative is in what you should do. The imperative is not actually in what you shouldn't do, if that makes sense. So I'll give you an example. In Matthew 5, You, uh, Jesus talks about, you have heard it said, but I tell you, you know, that kind of format. I don't think that's pretty revolutionary. I think most people kind of think about that when they think of Jesus. Um, Jesus talks about a sin cycle. And then he talks about a way to break that sin cycle that then leads to a transforming Mm -hmm. initiative. That's like, you've heard it said, don't murder. Um, Tradition says if you're good or if you don't murder, you're good. Like that's it. But I, I tell you, he who hates his brother has committed murder in his heart. He's telling you that just because you don't murder doesn't mean everything in you wants that to not be, basically. But what I tell you mm. is to do this. The command comes in the very last part. If you're finding yourself hating your brother, you're not in relationship and you're not in connection and you don't have empathy with them. What I, what Jesus then basically says is go get in relationship and connect. The golden rule in, mm. in Christianity is actually very different. And I'm just ripping this from C.S. Lewis. Every, every other relation, mm. religion's golden rule version, if you will, is... <clears throat> Don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you, but Jesus doesn't allow you to do that. Jesus says, "Do unto others what I what you would have done unto you." That's um, by relation, by necessity, is relational. In Confucianism, I think is the next closest where you get almost a verbatim statement. You have don't do unto others that means i don't have to be in relationship to anyone and i can be morally fine Hmm. in jesus it's not so because what he's getting at is the fundamental way to be human is connection that's what it means to be created in the image of god and move and live and breathe is to be in connection Hmm. And so when I learned that, that dovetailed in a conversation of nonviolence, that dovetailed in a conversation of what it means to be in right relationship with not just others, but myself, with mm-hmm. creation as a whole, with God, the only the only thing that made sense was resurrection. I was also reading NT Wright at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I'm all over the place with scholarship and his surprised by hope, which is a synthesis of his bigger academic work, the resurrection of the son of God, just for the first time brought everything home of like the Christian faith is first Corinthians 15, Jesus died and rose again, according to the scriptures. And then he appeared. A lot of the hermeneutical weight of 1 Corinthians 15 is then actually placed on the resurrection more than his death. Mm -hmm. The thrust of the Christian faith is if Jesus died, what big whoop. It's that he rose again, that everything is different. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Mm -hmm. It's not zombification. And the resurrection is is everything and creation eventually will undergo it's like creation wide like it starts with humans being resurrected and then it'll be a creation wide resurrection as envisioned in revelation but God is not destroying everything there's a there's a cleansing a rebirth a, a renewal of creation so i was learning all of that for the first time as my wife was becoming a trauma counselor. And the reason that's Mm -hmm. important is because trauma is somatic. Um, Everything in trauma world is what is going on. There's a very famous book. I think you've mentioned it even on this, on this podcast before called the body keeps the score. And the entire thesis of that book is Your body keeps the score, even when your brain can't, because trauma is overwhelming. Um, And your body holds on to that, down to the cellular level when you've experienced it. Mm. But it's not synthesized, or I'm sorry, it's not processed, it's not integrated into the narratival experience, but you're still reacting from it because your body kept the score, um, and that's a really dumbed down way of saying what's going on in that book, but it's the Bible on trauma. And so she was reading mm-hmm. that, and I was reading Kingdom Ethics, where Jesus is talking about breaking sin cycles by embodied behavior. <laughs> and we will use trauma as an understanding of how the um, the human person is impacted and does what they do, whether it makes sense or not, Um, because it is probably the best living parable we have to um, what a lot of religious texts would refer to as negative moral behavior, or uh, to put this in my own faith system, Christianity, the closest we have to understanding a living parable of what sin is and its devastating effects. So at about this time in the story, I am transitioning to what me and my wife want to do long term she's almost at least halfway through her licensing hours and she's a trauma counselor now and what that means is it's a particular holistic way of looking at the human person and helping them arrive at healing through something that's relationally based and adaptive to their needs i'll get to what those terminal what those particular terms mean in a second but long term we realized we wanted to open a for lack of a better word educational center and counseling center so like you could go to get training and you could go to experience healing and what my wife brilliantly wanted to do was basically a counselors without borders setup, mm. which includes incorporating a lot more interns than necessarily professional counselors because interns are definitely moldable, but they're also cheaper. And so the, the center could function as a place to meet the needs of people who couldn't otherwise maybe afford it or have access to mental health care. And it would also function as a theological education center that transitions into how we are beginning to understand the biblical narrative holistically from Genesis to Revelation rather than, you know, Jesus died for my sins and I get to go to heaven when I die. (laughs) Um this place sounds like some hippie nonsense doesn't it Um I'm just kidding <laughs> I will say a lot of that got way more fleshed out in my college experience and working for the church it was so much more robust because that's what reformed theology got to let me experience was the contours of exploring um the topic of theology but with what people outside of that world would call philosophical precision. Hmm. Okay. Um, but, uh, so my, we want to open up the center and we, let's see, how do I put this within the Southern Baptist tradition? There is a push for what's called biblical counseling. And that is rather than using the DSM, you're basically using the Bible. I, I joke, but, and it's a caricature, but uh, it also feels uncomfortably true at times. Um, and there's also even more conservative strains of that called new counseling, which is, if you've heard of this before, pray the gay away. It's that kind of concept. Um, the guy who actually started new counseling, J something or other didn't actually believe the mind existed because there was no corresponding organ for that function like the heart pumps blood or the lungs cause oxygenation in the body there's nothing that arises that causes the mind to function and therefore it doesn't Did he not
1: know about the brain Or
0: well oh 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 we're getting <laughs> into the philosophy of mind now let's be careful <laughs> Sorry, oh, that's just it that feels like another conversation but basically there wasn't a direct function like a to be like like i said like the like your your stomach digests you know there was no correlation i mean isn't that i mean so, well so every obviously obviously i'm
1: I'm doing something stupid by trying to argue with the founder of neuthatic counseling but i mean isn't that more a function of how little we know about neuroscience yeah <laughs> that- <laughs>
0: Oh, let me keep going. Um, Therefore, (laughs) the mind didn't exist. And, you know, what basically the mind is was what the soul is. Does that make sense? Uh, So this is a very spiritual way of diagnosing and assessing people's problems. Now, again, that's a very conservative. It still happens. It's definitely I wouldn't say the majority of what's going on in churches, but I would say I wasn't too far off when I said basically the Bible replaces the DSM and what pastors are doing nowadays without having any clinical training is to use Bible verses for diagnosing purposes. Mm -hmm. And that is very much a, and I, I mean this in its technical sense, a bastardization of what the text function as and its purpose and locus of communicating like sorry i will get on a soapbox with that one so i'm gonna stop that
1: now well yeah i mean i mean even even on the most basic level it is a little bit wild to take this set of books that in no way presents itself as a manual for psychological diagnosis and therapy and try to use it. Uh I mean, I don't think that's, (laughs) I mean, you'd think that wouldn't be terribly controversial, but well, (laughs) there it is. Um,
0: Yeah. Anyway. And it's not, it's (laughs) very, very modern way of looking at things. I want to stress that the church fathers or the patristic Uh, discipline if you will studying the voices in the church past they did not look at knowledge this way they did not look at the bible functioning that way Um, there was just a general acceptance that Uh, scripture as whatever special revelation it is, it functioned in concert with every other kind of revelation. And that was colloquially God's two ways of communicating. However that's mediated and however that's organized in priority, that's a different conversation. But it wasn't the Bible as be all end all when it came to how the human person operated and functioned within Christianity because I mean the best medicine of the day was just kind of assumed in how we understood humans to operate if that makes sense.
1: Right and that's I mean that's a strain of thought that continues even into the patristics yep. and the yep. reformers. Um like if you if you read um Thomas Aquinas yes. Summa Theologica yes. I think I mean
0: he quotes Aristotle more than he quotes the Bible and that <laughs> Yes. Yes. Like, so. You are right. You are very right. Um I've been Um, accused of being Thomistic at times, and you know what? I'll wear that with a badge of (laughs) honor when it's appropriate.
1: (laughs) Well, you know you'll never get accepted by the Eastern Orthodox Christians if you do that. Actually, (laughs)
0: Eastern Orthodoxy has by far had the most impact on me, so that makes me sad. So we were knowing what we wanted to do long term was a holistic approach to healing and i don't mean that in soul care terms which i think is really popular these days especially within um conservative movements still present at some of the major seminaries um I think what differentiates where I am at now, where my wife is kind of at now, is the spiritual gives language a lot to what's going on in the biopsychosocial aspects of things in a very real sense without having to go into what makes us essentially human is this part of us that can exist away from our body and be perfectly fine without it. Um, And I know that sounds very esoteric, so I hope to clear that up in a little bit. Um, So we want this counseling center, um, and we're having a holistic vision for what that looks like. Um, I read what I read theologically, she reads what she reads psychologically, and they're just dovetailing together too perfectly. What comes out of this is a new understanding for both of us, uh, but for me especially, because I can only speak for myself, I guess, uh, is, a, is an under, a dual understanding of what we call attachment theory and trauma. And y- usually people in this world of attachment and trauma, they have their strengths in kind of one side or other. I feel like it's two sides of the same coin, but like people who talk about attachment stuff don't seem to understand the implications for trauma. And people who talk about trauma a lot don't understand that it all starts in attachment. So attachment theory is... Was pioneered by John Bowlby around the time of World War II. He's a British guy, so Bowlby was observing boarding school children first and foremost, and resultant behavior from being not in close proximity with their primary caregivers, and then started tracing that through kids with lost caregivers, and eventually formed four distinct attachment styles that directly correlated with the likelihood of negative social behavior. What has happened since that time is the development of a lot of neuroimaging and other uh, experiments that could measure hormone responses and other experiments that could basically measure longitudinal epigenetic studies. And so what what's happened since Bowlby first started doing that around World War II is an interdisciplinary approach called interpersonal neurobiology has developed, uh, and it's a holistic understanding of the human person that... Um, can be summed up in you do not exist by yourself. Mm-hmm. You are always embodied. You are always in relationship. Mm-hmm. And what we call the mind regulates the exchange of energy in every single one of those directions. It ex- it moderates the energy flow between your body and your relationships and your brain.
1: That sounds extremely new agey.
0: <laughs> it's not new agey in terms of... uh I get that energy. I mean, when you talk new, about energy
1: cool. flow, like, like what do you what do you mean exactly by energy flow? I mean, I, I feel like there's real scientific theory there, but I feel like the use of the word phrase "energy flow" is obscuring that. <laughs> 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 I mean, am I crazy? That that's I mean, no, that not like, at all. That sounds like Marianne Williamson stuff. Right oh my here. gosh! Yes, uh,
0: the brain is like this interconnected cell network that allows electrochemical energy to flow. Um, It's intricate intricately related to the rest of our body. And therefore, that's why when I'm talking about the brain, I'm also talking about the embodied nervous system that's distributed throughout the rest of the body. And therefore our mind is an embodied and relational emergent process that regulates that flow of energy and information exchange. Um, The embodied part involves a system of energy and information flow patterns and the information is a pattern of energy that has also what we would probably call symbolic value that's very that's a very non-technical term for a lot of technical stuff Uh, but this means that the mind is not just an output of brain function and the purpose of relationships is to change the patterns and energy flow so therefore a human being is a creature that experiences that's the body the sharing of energy and information flow relationships through the mechanism of the flow, that's our brain. And this produces an emergent self-organizing process that regulates the movement of energy and information flow, the mind, uh, across time. Um, And I'm just ripping from a lot of smarter people to synthesize that. (laughs) Um, In 2006, the CDC released a longitudinal study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. Um, It took thousands and thousands. No, I'm just kidding. It took thousands of children and studied them over a long course of time. And the more uh, negative experiences, they had a scale of nine particular factors, the more a child experienced Situations on those factors, um, including everything from being victim to watching victimization happen um, to not having access to getting their daily needs met, like the more likelihood that child was to experience not just emotional health problems, but physical Health problems later on in life. If you have a Mm. a study, or I'm sorry, if you have an ACE score of four or more, you're twice as likely to be a smoker just off the bat, and four times as likely to be a drinker. Um, Sorry, I mean alcoholic. I I do mean addictive behavior. Uh, And since the that study was released, more has been done in trauma studies to talk about what trauma actually is. Now. Um, Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score is probably, he's probably the world, or at least in North America, he is the expert on trauma. And while there isn't 100% unanimity on like the A, B, C, D steps of how brains encode traumatic memories, what is in agreement is The Body Keeps the Score. If something, (laughs) if something we experience at a particular time is overwhelming. That means we feel hopeless and helpless. We do not encode that experience in the synthesized narrative format, which allows us to have, which means we processed it, which means we have language for it to describe what went on and um, the ability to recall it without going through distress. Um, That, that, experience has to go somewhere. I talked about energy in one point to kind of explain in a non-new agey way that energy has to go somewhere in our body. One of the most evidence-based treatment modalities for veterans who experience PTSD is still exposure therapy. So That means they're going to re-experience in a controlled way what they experienced that was uncontrollable and overwhelming at some other time, but in incrementalized ways. So I think everybody understands if you have a fear of needles, you're gradually exposed to sharper and more needle-like things in a controlled way in order to give you mastery or basically to not provoke a stress response in you. Still very common, but it's not processing the memory and giving it in a coherent narrative to join um, in our memories. But the body kept that score, and um, it, it does. It it just means you are not learning to trust the way you are designed to exist and move within your environment. So attachment, we use TBRI in post-adopt trust-based relational intervention. It's an evidence-based intervention system that is designed to meet the complex developmental needs of vulnerable or at-risk children. This model is probably the single thing that convinced me we've been looking at human development all wrong for a very long time in the West, but it's pretty ancient uh, in the grand scheme of things. We're talking about technical precision, precision being added to something very ancient. The six factors of trauma, there there's a there's nine points for an ACE score, but there's what we call six factors to trauma according to the ACE study. And at least three of them are all prenatal. Trauma can shape the brain and body of a developing infant. If mom is stressed during pregnancy, she experiences Cortisol spikes that affects the developing child. If she is malnourished or um, experiences, you know, violence. I guess that's a stress factor. Um, or is just generally not operating in a happy, healthy, connected way. All of that translates to that developing human being is still coming out of the womb primed to react to the environment of stress. But all that baby has had in the womb up until that point that their little brain body knows is mom's voice, mom's heartbeat, mom's body temperature, mom's spell, smell, everything about that infant's world revolves around mom. And when that infant comes out, if it's not immediately then put into mom's arm, that's why we what we call skin to skin, immediately on birth, the infant's brain body doesn't know to kickstart the, the process of I have a need that can be met. Um, so a lot of my my son, he was an emergency Mm -hmm. C-section. Nothing about that birth went the way we wanted it to go. Um, And I don't know if anybody Mm -hmm. who listens to this has had an emergency C-section or a C-section in general. The the baby is not returned to mommy immediately because they have to be, the baby has to be assessed, mom has to be sewed up, and a few other things happen before there's a reunification. Meanwhile, um, the birth is Basically, traumatic. It's a traumatic separation. And that's why there's rupture and repair in this attachment world. You know, rupture from the womb, repair right by going right back to mom. That is. That is stopped. That is blocked. That is a a deprivation that enters the infant early on in life. The whole anxiety of the nervous system is kicked off because it's not being calmed by the things the infant has to know it's safe and secure in its limbic system, which is the emotional brain. What I just described involves three four factors of trauma after that is when you get into abuse and neglect and other incidental incidental traumas and all and and that kind of stuff the things we typically associate with trauma but no at least half of the factors start way back in utero what we always say in the TBI are, about TBRI world is that the lesson of the first year of life is I can trust baby cries caregiver comes and meets mm. need that is the attachment cycle the next two years of life build upon that as baby learns more and more to develop their proprioceptive system their interoceptive system um, we uh, all of that basically is like our like our senses and our orientation in space and 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 our like blood pressure, like all of that stuff is, is regulated in those years by consistent care giving. Um, in in, in our foster adopt world, we're talking about kids who consistently do not meet those developmental markers. They have complex developmental trauma. That's not just incidental. That's why we call it complex. It's ongoing and the deficits build. We often talk about foster adopt kids, their deep wound is they learned very quickly they could not trust adults to meet their need. The very deep core of all of this is I can't trust rather than I can trust. Every Mm. personality disorder you can find in the DSM starts with those song notes. That's what the world of trauma really Mm. opened up for us is personality disorders are what we've come to understand as trauma responses. They perfectly mimic trauma responses. I want to put a fine point on this. Um,
1: <laughs> Cause we do need to wrap this up eventually. Um, so, all right. If you reject the idea um, as I probably do as well. So I, I don't, I don't, I'm not meaning this in a condescending way. Um, but if if you reject this conception of the the body and the soul as sort of the ghost and the machine arrangement, as I feel probably most people in Western culture who believe in the soul kind of implicitly accept this idea that you know we're this we a ghost controlling a machine, where we're a spirit controlling a body mm-hmm. um if you reject that what's the what's the succinct way? because I know you believe in the soul, obviously you're still a Christian. Um, So if if, if you reject the ghost of the machine, what's the succinct way of summarizing what you, like, give me the 10 word summary of what the soul is. What would you say? You are. Everything about you. Playing devil's advocate. Please. Like when you say something like that, I I say, well, if, if that's true, then the soul is just a metaphor. Right, like the soul doesn't literally exist. It's just this, mm-hmm. this high-minded. Like, what, what do you say to that?
0: So, I would have to say that there's a lot of smarter people than me who have done research, and I would say read them. That's my one caveat before I start <laughs> this. Okay. Uh, sure. The language we see translated as the ethereal part of us in scripture so like think Hebrew scriptures think Christian scriptures and that's Old Testament and New Testament for some people but the Hebrew mm-hmm. scriptures when when they hear oh so really well known psalm my soul pants after you like the deer pants after water right it's pretty mm-hmm. well known in our culture the word translated soul there nephesh is means throat Think pulse, think breath of life, think very visceral thing. It's not Mm -hmm. ethereal. And when God breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve in the garden or the first humans that were and they became a living being, that same language is described of animals. Where things could get complicated is the the new testament documents when there when there is definitely an exposure to greek culture and Suke, uh what we common translate as soul in fact it's the root for a psychology uh there's a well-known series called the history of christian doctrine by a man named Jerasov pelican he doesn't live anymore he has sadly passed away um And he converted to Eastern Orthodoxy before the end of his life. But his book series is really well-respected and it's really well-researched. And the first volume is on the first five or 600 years of Christianity. And it's literally just covering... What the early church and corresponding centuries of the church, what they did to formulate doctrine and doctrinal statements and very famous councils will be included like Nicaea in that. The doctrine of the soul as an immaterial or ethereal part of us was very much so borrowed from platonic philosophy like that's not really much of a given i'm not going so far as to say there was something nefarious or uninformed about that that's it to me that sounds like brilliant apology apologetics for the faith Mm -hmm. that's like we can take your best concepts your most held concepts and transform it by the cross and the resurrection and that's literally exactly how the church fathers approached everything you don't go to the church fathers and see a unity of faith like like i have like we know what modern doctrine is now and i'm gonna go to the church fathers Mm -hmm. and they're and i'm just looking for agreement and look the strain runs all throughout the fathers no 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 that's hubris that's Mm -hmm. um we go and look at the symphony And we learn to play our part Mm -hmm. in the symphony because we're still a part of the same symphony. Mm -hmm. And so we look at the fathers for the faith expressed at particular historical junctures. And they Mm -hmm. took the faith using the lens of the cross and the resurrection and approached the best truth of their day with that lens. Mm -hmm. And to me, we have a very embodied savior who died and then rose very embodied and the story has always included a creation-wide resurrection even if it starts with humans and um i think the body keeps the score that i mentioned by bessel van der kolk because trauma is stored down to the very cells of our body resurrection makes sense because we need a scrubbing down to the cellular level uh reincarnation doesn't cover that there's no system breakage so Augustine is famous for saying evil is not a thing in and of itself. Rather, it's a lack in good, like rot in a tree or rust in a car. And so what attachment and trauma really has taught me is that perfectly describes human behavior. If there is something negative in our behavior, there was a lack And this lack goes back to the very beginning. Mm. And it's not a lack that was caused by something ethereal. So, um, I mean, aside from your change in beliefs, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind about this? I think the the first and foremost thing this changed was the nature of evangelism and discipleship. Hmm. So by definition, there's no such thing as soul winning. Hmm. Like, um, I I'm still participate in this culture in East Texas where waitresses and waiters don't get tips, they get gospel tracks. <laughs> like it's silly, but to me, first and foremost, you just denied the good news that death mm. doesn't get the final say. Mm-hmm. Because you're not helping that waiter or waitress literally pay their bills to keep moving and surviving Mm and in their environment. (laughs) Um, um, I think this got really driven home for me when I started my Master of Divinity and learning how the ancient Near East told creation narratives. And Mm -hmm. Genesis really stands in contrast to that in the attachment trauma lens, because Mm. so many cultures, their gods are doing things, creating humans ascending to power at the expense of others. So Mm. like even in the Enuma Elish and you have Marduk ascending in the Babylonian pantheon, humans aren't created to be in relationship with humans are created to fulfill the God's needs. If we translate Mm -hmm. that to a parent child relationship, which isn't a stretch by philosophical standards in the ancient near East, we would call that an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. Children do not meet the needs of parents. Parents meet the needs of children. And to be, Oh, that's what
1: I've been doing wrong. Oh, we
0: just solved all your (laughs) problems. Luke. (laughs) But Genesis starts with God having met all of humanity's needs before they're even created. Like they're literally born into a sensory rich world, thriving on connection. So
1: I have three kind of general philosophical questions I've been trying to ask all my guests, because I, I really want to get at those, these um, ontological and epistemological questions. Uh, you know, what is, how do we know ourselves How do we know truth and we've been literally talking about these the whole time so maybe we can get through them fast we'll see um first of all zach what is identity (laughs) do we all have an identity is identity fundamental to who we are how do
0: we know our identity what do you think our identity is fundamentally embodied and in relationship. The, uh, there's a reason solitary confinement drives people crazy in prisons. The brain is not wired to be alone. What about, um, what about human nature?
1: What is human nature? Do we all have a specific nature? Are we all basically the same? Are we all different? Are we all blank slates? What do you think?
0: I believe that the question of nature versus nurture was solved over a decade ago and basically put to rest. And I'm just paraphrasing Jonathan Haidt here, um, author of The Righteous Mind, when he says we are born with a rough draft brain body that... Nurture continually revises. And finally, what is truth? I believe that postmodernism is fundamentally getting to the heart of truth in that there is no truth that can be fully experienced by one individual alone. And what I mean by that is if gravity is a universal constant... I can only experience gravity at my current weight, height, density, etc. But I will never understand it at my dad's six foot five, whatever weight and density that he currently experiences it as. (laughs) I will never experience defying gravity without the aid of other much smarter minds putting me in a rocket ship (laughs) and blasting me out of the stratosphere. The point is. The only way to experience the full breadth and depth of truth is by relational experience.
1: For a second there, I was really hoping that you had like calculated your dad's density at some point.
0: I am not allowed to reveal (laughs)
1: that. (laughs) That's good. All right. Um, Thank you so much for being on the show, Zach. It's been a really interesting combo. Um, you got anything else to say?
0: Anything you need to? Anything you want to plug? A Twitter or anything like that? I do have a Twitter and Instagram. They're both the same. ZbK nine two six. I really want to be grateful to my seminary. I am currently at the Pillar Seminary online, and I, I do love the way they handle the text very carefully, and they have trained me very well, or are training me very well. All right. I think that's it
1: for this week. Um, Thank you so much for listening. This has been Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm that guy, Luke T. Harrington. You can find me on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington or go to my website, LukeTHarrington.com. I will see you next time. We talked about this a little bit last week when my guest was Amanda Beck, um, about how Western cultures, in the modern world at least, tend to think of people as infinitely elastic. Like, you can turn yourself into whatever you want to be. And I think part of the reason for that is this sort of mind-body dualism that we all implicitly believe Um, whether we consciously believe it or not, is that we are our minds or our souls and our bodies are just accoutrements (laughs) to that. Um, Our bodies are the shells we exist in. Um, But I think we could have a much more healthy relationship with ourselves and with our potentials if we stopped thinking of ourselves as minds and started thinking of ourselves as embodied minds. Um, You know, your body is not something you own. Your body is what you are. And you can't change it infinitely. You can only hope to steward it to be the best that it can be. Um... Which is different for different people, right? Um, that's about uh, all I have to say on this this week. Um, we'll talk in a couple weeks to uh, someone who has more thoughts on the soul and life after death and um, has dealt with, you know, real paranormal experiences um, Thank you so much for listening to Change My Mind. Um, If you like the show, please take a second to go on iTunes, give it a star rating, give it a review, that sort of thing. Really helps a podcast, um, especially when it's starting out. Last week I said I was going to read my reviews live on the air, so I'm going to do another one this week. This one here is from Amanda Catherine Scoggins. It's called Therapy for Us All. She says, at one point, Luke, the host, mentions this is a kind of therapy for him, and I think many of us will feel the same. Refreshing in the age of constant outrage we find ourselves in to hear other human beings just talking about how they changed and and hopefully grown. I look forward to seeing how the podcast evolves. Note. The host was the draw for me because he wrote a really unique horror novel called Ophelia Alive that I highly recommend. It's totally unrelated to the podcast, but I'm hoping he writes more novels in that vein. So check it out if you're a fan of thoughtful horror. Well, Amanda, have I got news for you? I just launched an all new experimental writing and multimedia event extravaganza. <laughs> With my, uh, with my good friend, um, award-winning novelist, K.B. Hoyle, um, she and I are launching an ongoing uh, seedier pants collaborative novel that we're publishing for free directly to the internet um, over at um, the website projectconarrative.com. Um, we picked three genres out of a hat to blend together, and it's going to be Uh, paranormal pirate adventure with coming-of-age themes (laughs) was what we settled on. Um, So that is launching, I believe, the same day that uh, this episode of my podcast launched. So this is going up on October the 1st, and the website should be going up around October the 1st as well. Uh, You can head over there. Um, The first chapter of the book, which I will write, is going up, I think, believe the 15th of the month, something like that, and she'll have the second chapter for you at the end of the month, and we're going to continue thusly until the the novel is completed. Um, It's going to be a Patreon-supported endeavor, so you can read the novel for free, but if you support us via Patreon, you can hear our ongoing podcast where we discuss the book and our uh, approaches to writing and that sort of thing, and you can read our monthly newsletter where we'll talk about it some more. And um, if you support us at a certain level, you will get a free uh, paperback copy of the book when it's completed. Um, so I'm pretty excited about that. KB Hoyle is one of my good friends. I'm really excited to be working with her. And um, so, yeah, please go over to uh, ProjectConarrative.com and check out the, the new project. Um, that's it for this week. Um, I want to thank Zach Corthals for being on the show. I want to thank Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Please go check out their other two podcasts, uh, Faith and Other Oddities and The Commentarians. Thank you for listening to Changed My Mind and... Don't be afraid to change your mind.